Well, hey, Heritage. I want to welcome everybody across our network. Bettendorf, love the opportunity to connect with you in these moments. Kiwani, man, I am so proud of your continued pursuit of God. And those of you tuning in online, thanks for joining us right where you are. This is the fourth and final week of our journey to understand the power and hope that we have by connecting with God through prayer. But we have called that series, that journey, Amen. And we started with week one, looking at the Lord's Prayer, very common prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We use that prayer to lead us through a specific worship and prayer expression that weekend. The following weekend, we looked at, in week two, how we have access through Jesus to ask of God, and he, he imparts to us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead into our own very lives. It's, it's a foundational concept. And it was the third week, last weekend, that we looked at a different form of asking in the expression of lament. And lament is a passionate expression of grief or joy. And when we, we engage lament in prayer, that's how we navigate the complexity of being created to walk with God in a garden, but we wake up every day in a desert. And, and lament prayer is probably not the most familiar prayer for, for many people, but it is probably the most needed prayer for most of us because we live in a world with lots of reasons worthy of lament. And God very powerfully worked in and through us as we took time to bring our pain, our loss, our sorrow, and, and release it to the Lord in an expression of lament. It was a powerful weekend. And if you've not been in this conversation to this point, you can get online at heritageqc.com under the media tab, and you can see this conversation along the way. And I encourage you to do that if you missed it. But I want to take a moment now to connect where we've been in this journey, where we were last weekend, to where we're going to be today. Because whether, whether you and I know it or not, or, read, or readily admit it or not, we have within us an innate desire to trust God. It's just in us. Trust is an expression of love, and we are created to love God. And so we want to trust God. It's just in us. The challenge is, in this world, we encounter loss. It's the desert reality. We experience pain, we experience hardship, we experience sorrow, and that space between the loss and our trust is, is where we wake up in the desert every day. And, and in this space here, though, we're, we experience things like, like sorrow, but we have this potential or opportunity to have hope. Now, prayer is the means by which we navigate this in-between in space, but it's a specific kind of prayer that we do that in, and that is in the prayer of lament. See, lament is this unique combination of sorrow and hope. It's sorrow seasoned or mixed with hope. It, where we, we have that pain, that loss, but we have this trust and expectation in who God is that we can actually experience something different. Now, whenever we engage in lament, any righteous expression of lament will always have contained within it an amen. Did you see what I did there? Uh-huh, yeah. Some of you are like, that is worth the price of admission right there. That's it. That's it. In any righteous expression of, of lament, we find an amen. That is because amen literally means, so be it. And so when we come to God in a prayer of lament, caught between the loss and this desire to trust, this space between, we release and we say, so be it. We remain in that place with trust in him. And it's a demonstration and expression of faith. Within every, righteous, within every righteous expression of lament, you find an amen as we declare, so be it. 
Now, whatever you're facing, whatever hardship, loss, setback, tragedy, sorrow, whatever you're facing, this is how we navigate the desert until we make it back to the garden. This is how we walk with God and worship while we're still in the desert. And anybody who walks the path of lament looks at sorrow and, and loss differently. We see it differently. Whenever you walk the path of lament, loss now looks differently. It's a different grid, different lens when you understand the reality of being able to trust amidst that, in that space between when we say, so be it. We can even get to the point where we can be like Paul, who was so declarative about this, and, and this is a guy who experienced lots of difficulty. Here's what he actually declared. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's a simple statement that reflects what I was just talking about on the easel, but it also just captures the reality of our ability to trust God in the space between the loss and, and, and the resolution, the space between asking and Him moving, as we talked about last weekend, in that lament space. And this statement actually gives us insight into Paul's view of God. <laughs> because there's a fundamental reality that actually is our first fill-in, if you're using the note guide today, that how we pray actually reflects our view of God. How you and I engage in prayer, how we, how we pray reflects our view of God. So if we do pray or we don't pray, that reflects our view of God. If we sit in prayer and we ask all the time and don't listen, or we just listen but don't ask, that reflects our view of God. If in our space of prayer we ask only for ourselves and we ask not for anybody else or even for God, that reflects our view of God. How we pray reflects our view of God. It's inherent to what it means to actually, like, understand the dynamic of prayer. And when we engage in a prayer space, we, we can have faith in that space, but our faith is more than just what we say. How we pray really reveals almost the truest sense of who we are. How we're wired and what's important to us. And, and how we engage with prayer reflects our view of God. It kind of reminds me of the story of a little boy who, after engaging in a fight with his parents, his dad sent him to his room. But when he got to his room, he began to pray out loud, and, and his dad overheard him pray, and he was praying, God, don't send my dad any more kids. He doesn't know how to treat the ones he has. <laughs> that dude's about to get in more trouble. But then he goes on to actually pray this. He says, and if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time like I am. Spunky little kid. But how we pray actually reflects our view of God, and it actually reveals a lot about us. So I want you to consider something. If someone were to listen into your prayer life, if someone could listen in on your prayer life, what would they learn about you? What would they learn about your relationship with God and your view of Him? If someone could listen in on your prayer life, what would they learn? And if you're thinking about that, does that sound appealing to you or does it sound appalling to you? <laughs> See, how we pray reflects our view of God. Now, the Bible, there's lots of things that make the Bible just awesome. But one of my favorite things about the Bible is that it's just chock full of great prayers. We get to listen in on, on an individual's prayer. We can, we can read a prayer like Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. We can, we can look at Abraham's prayer in Genesis 18, Moses' prayer in, in Exodus 32. We can look at Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 18. I mean, that's one of my favorite prayers. Each of those prayers teach us, they inspire us, they stir us, and we can learn a lot about those individuals and, and even about prayer. But there's one prayer that is by far my favorite. 
It's considered by many to be the greatest prayer recorded in Scripture. And it's not the Lord's Prayer. I mean, the Lord's Prayer is an amazing prayer. That the, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We looked at that week one, but that, I mean, it, it embraces the world, that prayer. It, it covers big and small, from God's kingdom to our daily need, from physical to spiritual needs. It's, it's, a, it's a very dynamic prayer. Its applicab- applicability is nearly unlimited, and nothing really falls outside the scope of that particular prayer. It's an amazing prayer, but that is not the prayer I'm talking about. The title of greatest prayer recorded in Scripture actually goes to a different prayer. It belongs to a different prayer. And it's the high priestly prayer of Jesus found in John 17. And if you have a Bible, I would love for you to grab it. Click or turn to this passage. John 17. We're going to show a section of it here in a moment as we get into it and read it. But, but this prayer was a prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples. The remaining 11 disciples at this point. And, and, but also prays for us. He prays this prayer after washing the feet of his disciples. He prays this prayer after Judas leaves to betray him. He prays it after he declared Peter would deny him. And and he engages in a space where he's praying for his 11 disciples, but also praying for us. And and it's coming right before he enters the place of crushing, the the, the garden, where he prays so intently that, that blood flows from his brow like sweat. It's in this space, it's this This prayer that precedes that moment where he prays for the 11 disciples, but then he goes beyond. And I want to pick this up in the last third of this prayer. Uh, He's he's prayed for a few things, including the 11 disciples, but now he shifts gears, and this is where we're picking it up. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about the 11 disciples that are still following him. Judas is excluded out of that. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who is that? Us! Yeah! Jesus is praying for you and me all the way back then. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This this prayer has tons of stuff just packed into it. Jesus offers it during the last few hours hanging with his disciples before he enters into a very difficult space. He, He has spent time eating with them. In that conversation before this prayer, he offers them the new covenant in his blood. He's also done the whole Lord's Supper thing, the communion concept, the bread and the, and the cup. And he's, and he's engaging in this particular prayer where he, he gives them instructions, he gives them encouragement, but he, he prays over them and he prays for those who will believe in him through their message. He ultimately is praying for you and I. Right before going into a place of sorrow, betrayal, injustice, beatings, and death, we were on his mind. He cared enough about us to lean into praying for us. Even back then, it's the expression of his amazing love. Now, this high priestly prayer is the longest prayer of Jesus. It's recorded in the Gospels. And it's also known as a farewell prayer, another name for it. It has the three basic themes are are God's glory, oneness, and joy. In it, he models for us prayer 
But also in it, we get a glimpse into his heart because we get to listen in on his prayer. We get to see a bit more who he is because, again, often the truest of who we are, the, the truest nature of who we are is revealed in our prayers. When we pray, who we actually are, what we think of God, what we think of others, is revealed in that prayer space. And so we get to look in and understand Jesus. This chapter gives us a cool opportunity to see his heart. Now, many of the elements within this prayer in chapter 17 reflect or parallel the Lord's Prayer piece. You got God's name, the kingdom of God, concern for evil. It's all in there. But what I find most fascinating about the John 17 prayer is what Jesus chooses to focus on when he's praying for us. Did you see it? If you, just, if you grab your note guide and you go back and look, and I encourage you to highlight, underline, circle, the things he actually asked for. He asked that we would believe. He asked that we would be one. That we would be in him as the, he is in the Father. He then repeats, be one. And then in verse 23, he says the complete unity. Ultimately, what Jesus is praying in his final prayer for us on this earth, he is praying for complete unity. And of all the things that he could pray for, he chooses that. You want to know why? He knows us. <laughs> he knows that we can even get in a fight with ourselves. It's kind of like the story of the, the ship captain who was out and they saw smoke coming from an uncharted island. And so they made their way over with a rescue team. When they got to the shore, a guy came running out of the tree line and, and said, I am so glad you guys are here. I have been stranded on this island alone for five years. The captain's like, well, hey man, let's get you out of here. We're here to rescue you. But as they began to leave, the captain paused for a moment. He said, are you sure you're alone? The man said, yes, absolutely, quite so. They continued to walk a little further and the captain said, are you sure? The man said, yes, I think I would know, but why do you ask? The captain said, well, I see you have three huts over there. Why do you have three huts? The man said, oh, that's easy. I live in one and I go to church in the other. The captain said, well, well, well that makes sense for the first two. What about the third? The man said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> yes, I did. Okay, as funny as that is, and it is funny, it stings a little. <laughs> Because contained within it is a reality and a truth that we struggle with unity. At our core, we're, we're inherently challenged, even stunted relationally when it comes to unity. We, we struggle to be in a relationship, even, even when we're the only one on the island. We struggle with it. Yet the Bible's filled with examples and directives and even reminders that, that we need each other. We're better together. And that God designed us to experience life in the context of community. Yet we struggle relationally with, with God and with others. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because we've defined unity the wrong way. See, I've been walking through and thinking through a process, talking with God about this, because I understand that God's given us as a church a pretty big vision to seek the peace and prosperity of our cities and the region as a whole. In order to do that, we're making some bold moves, taking some big risks, and, but we're doing it under his covering. And it's not just going to be about us. It's going to involve other organizations, even other churches. And so as I've been processing through this idea of unity, I've been understanding, I think sometimes we define unity the wrong way. We, we use the wrong lens and the wrong grid. And if you already used your little block to fill in the previous thing, that was all extra. Don't worry about it. Just find some other spot you can fill this in if you want to draw it in your guide. But here's what I understand. Jesus... 
is the way that we have relationship with God. We get, to, we get to have a relationship with God through Jesus. So, so, so God has designed it, and it is through Jesus that we can know him, walk with him, experience him. But he's not just given us Jesus. He's given us the Bible. And the Bible becomes the, is the instruction book, the, how we understand how we relate to Jesus. We understand ourselves, and we understand how to live. But beyond the Bible and, and Jesus, God has also given us the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus gave us a mission as a people, to go and make disciples. That great commission is exactly what that is. And we're supposed to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. The greatest commandment is to love God and love others. And so, so as we love God, love others, we make disciples. These three concentric circles should reflect how we define unity. This is how we should do that. However, we start to bump into things like, like doctrine or or we bump into uh, issues of, of any kind, cultural issues, uh, or other realities in life. We, we, even, we even bump into preferences that we have, or, or politics. And when we bump into these other things that fall outside these three circles, we can start to challenge unity with these things and, and let them kind of creep in. In fact, what I think most often happens for people is we start to define unity not in concentric circles, but we define it in a wedge. And we say, look, with this singular expression of Jesus and this uh, certain interpretation of Scripture and this limited application of the mission and this particular politic reality perspective and, and this particular issue and this style of worship, we start to say, this is what defines unity. And if you fit in here, we can live in unity. If you don't, we can't. Here's the problem. This is about affinity, not unity, as God defines it. Yes, you can find affinity in certain alignments to politics and worship styles and all that, but that should not define our unity. Our unity should be defined by Jesus, the Bible, and the Great Commission. Stop. And when we try to do the wedge thing, we try to define it by pushing these other issues in, then we go and build a third hut. But unity as God designed it should be defined by Jesus, the Bible, and the Great Commission. The other stuff we can agree to disagree on. It shouldn't challenge our unity. We shouldn't go build a third hut because we think this is the only way to live and now I can't talk to you anymore because you don't fit into this thing. And here's another challenge. When we start to take politics or a particular doctrine or a preference and we elevate it in the conversation and we put it ahead of Jesus, Bible, and the Great Commission, well, now we're meddling with idolatry and it's a dangerous place to be. See, unity, it should be defined in concentric circles. We can find affinity, but this should not define our affinity. It should only define, th th this is just our affinity. It shouldn't define our unity. Are you with me? I hope you hear my heart in this conversation. What Jesus did, he chose to pray for our unity. And he identified that in his relationship with God, in our relationship with each other. And it plays out in how we view him, how we view scripture, and how we engage in the mission. Let me give you an extreme example of this. There was a man who came across a, another man who was standing on a bridge. He's about to jump. First man said, don't do it. Second man said, nobody loves me. First man said, wait a second. Do you believe in God? And said, yeah, okay. Well, he loves you. He said, okay, I believe in God. First man said, well, are you a Christian or a, or a Jew? And second man said, I'm a Christian. First man said, hey, me too, man. Me too. Then he said, are you Protestant or Catholic? Second man said, I'm Protestant. So am I. I'm Protestant. He said, 
what denomination are you? Second man said, I'm holiness. He said, I'm, I'm in the holiness denomination too. That's just crazy. We're connecting like this. First man said, are you northern holiness or southern holiness? Second man said, northern holiness. He said, ah, man, me too. I'm northern holiness as well. But are you northern conservative holiness or northern liberal holiness? He said, northern conservative holiness. Yeah, man, I'm northern conservative holiness as well. But are you northern conservative holiness Great Lakes region or northern conservative holiness Eastern region? Oh, no, I'm northern, northern conservative holiness Great Lakes region. So am I, man, like they fist bumped each other in that moment. Then he said, are you Northern Conservative Holiness Great Lakes Region Council of 1850 or Northern Conservative Holiness Great Lakes Region Council of 1916? Man said, I'm Northern Conservative Holiness Great Lakes Region Council of 1916. The first man paused. Then he said, die, heretic, and pushed him off the bridge. Okay, people, listen. That's a joke. Don't send me your hate mail. It's just, it's just to help illustrate the reality. I mean, no, I mean no slight against any denomination. I don't mean to insult anyone. I just want to illustrate. When we start to develop a definition of unity by a wedge, we create an inherent problem. Yet we do it all the time. We cannot and we should not define our unity by agreement in all things. Can't. At some point we're going to disagree. And honestly, if we think we have it all figured out, like we got our wedge and I've got everything all figured out, when you think you have it all figured out, it's proof you don't. Because the more you lean into things of God, the more you lean into the scripture, the deeper, the more beautiful, the more dynamic it is. It's still, all, it's still truth, but we just go into things that are beyond our understanding in that. When we think we have it all figured out, it's proof we don't. And unity requires room for grace under his priorities, the three priorities. And as a church... We seek to build unity around Jesus, the Bible, and the Great Commission. That's our heartbeat and desire. Building unity around agreement in other categories is inherently problematic. Because at some point, we will not agree. And if our unity is rooted in that, we will no longer have unity. I once heard the definition of how uh, when, when donkeys are attacked... They will, they will back in in a circle and face out towards their attacker. That's how they respond to an attacker. Horses, on the other hand, actually face in and, and, it, and leave their backside exposed to the attacker. So horses are positioned to, to kick the attacker, and donkeys are positioned to kick who? Themselves. That's often how we function in the church. Now again, please, no need to send me hate mail later this week. It's a metaphor. And I, in love, as a fellow donkey, am sharing the reality that when it comes to unity, we struggle. And we start to, we start to kick ourselves. And we focus on the wrong things. Because we ultimately cannot build unity around a wedge approach. At some point, we will not agree. And if our unity is rooted in that, we will no longer have unity and we'll push the other person away. Or we'll go and build a third hut. Instead of defining unity around the wedge... We define unity around Jesus, the Bible, and the Great Commission. And that is all rooted in what God gives us. And God gives us love. What he imparts to us is his love. He himself is love. We're able to love because of that. It's love. So true unity is not born out of agreement, but love. True unity is not born out of agreement, but love. It's not affinity or agreement on everything, but the core things which come from love. True unity, the unity, the biblical unity God calls us to is not born out of agreement, but love. And, I, and quite honestly, God has left some things in Scripture that, that appear to be open for debate. At least that's how we see them. Which is all the more reason not to make lesser things an issue of unity. 
So instead of asking about a church community or dynamic, do they have what I'm looking for? Do they have what I prefer? Do they treat me well? Do they serve my needs? Do they give me a good deal? We should never be using that as a primary criteria to assess a church unity dynamic. If we do, we end up treating connecting in unity like connecting with a business, like, like your favorite retail store. That's the wrong lens. That's the wrong grid. True unity in Christ is not born out of agreement. It's, it's born out of love. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us some more insight into how we do this. And, and I'm going to go to verse 12, which is not in your guide, but check out what he says here. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, here's the deal. This is how we're supposed to live. It, it's not easy. In fact, we can't do these things he's identifying without one particular thing. We struggle to relate. We struggle to live this way. But if we have the one thing, we actually can live this way. And Paul speaks to it in the very next verse, verse 14. And over all these virtues put on what? Love. Which binds them all together in perfect what? Unity. True unity is not born out of agreement. It's born out of love. So seeking to achieve unity by finding agreement, man, it's not possible. It, it's, in some ways, it's like trying to get fit by driving past a fitness center. <laughs> it, you don't get it. it. It's like trying to satisfy hunger by parking in the restaurant parking lot. It's, you're close, but you're not going to get the job done. When we're trying to align unity out of agreement rather than love. Love is what binds it all perfectly together. Unity does not come primarily or simply from agreement. It's born out of love. So having, Jesus having prayed for unity makes tons of sense. It, it's ultimately rooted in love. Love is the means by which we can function. He said we would be known by our love. So when it comes to actually engaging together in relationship with one another and walking this life together, the goal is not alignment with every belief or conviction. That is not possible. We have different perspectives. We, we, at some point, we'll disagree. The further we move out the circles, we'll reach a point where we don't agree. And then we're tempted to push or go build a third hut. But God wants us to define our unity around his son, Jesus, out of love. We're to be known by our love. Jesus, in this upper room conversation where he ends up praying for us and he does the, the Lord's Supper and Judas leaves to betray, he also identifies the new commandment is to love one another and that we will be known by our love. Love begets unity and unity that then defines how we live. And true unity is not born out of agreement, it's born out of love. Okay, so what? Well, Prayer is the key by which we navigate the space we wake up in every day and the space by which we navigate how we live in unity and prayer becomes the means by which we walk and step with God. And at first glance, Jesus choosing to pray about unity as the primary focus in his final prayer seems a little odd, but the more we think about it, he was spot on. And, and I want to move, move us back to understanding prayer and, and our specific prayer life, our own individual prayer life. And I want to ask a question for you to consider, us to consider. Who is the greatest focus of your prayers? In your season of life right now, whether you're caught between loss and trust or whether you're, you're experiencing something awesome, who is the greatest focus of your prayers? Is it you? Is it God? 
your family members, those not yet in relationship with Jesus? Who is the greatest focus of your prayers? And if somebody were to listen in on those prayers, what do they learn about you or about your view of him? See, how we pray and who we pray for reveals a lot about us. So who is the greatest focus of your prayers? As we walk through life and we, and we, we bump into people and we relate to people, God, as we sit in this space over here around this particular diagram, as we live in a relationship with Jesus and we read scripture and we live on mission, we bump into people. And when we bump into people, God reveals to us insights and understanding about the dynamics around us. But if we don't understand what to do with those insights, we end up creating a wedge that separates and divides rather than unifies. Because when God reveals something to us about those around us or ourselves, it's to be a, a place from which we pursue unity, not division. Oswald Chambers has a great way of saying this. Here's what he said. God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize, but that we may intercede. In intercede is a fancy word for coming before God in prayer and asking on behalf of someone else, pleading on behalf of someone else. When God illuminates to us a dynamic in life, a dynamic in our government, a dynamic in a community situation, in our family, in ourselves. It's, it's not for us to criticize. It's so that we will intercede. It's so we'll turn and go in prayer to lean in so that he will do something. And as you figure out who is the greatest focus of your prayer, I want you to understand that whenever God reveals to you an insight, it's to intercede, not to criticize. It doesn't become the justification for disunity. It should become the justification for you to all the more to pursue unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It was so important, Jesus made that the focus of his prayer. And whenever we go and intercede on behalf of people, we can keep it under the umbrella of love and, and ask in submission and, and, and humility before the Lord to, to engage with that person we're praying for, or we can ask way out here in a hateful, spiteful, angry way, and that's not what he's asking for. He wants us to intercede on behalf of people in a posture of love, humbly asking God to work in us, not only just work in them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually take a few moments. As, as Jesus made unity a focus and said that we would be known by our love, we're, those things are essential. We're going to take a moment to step into a communion expression. The same night that Jesus prayed for us in the upper room, he went through the process of, of taking the bread and the cup. This is an individual profession, but it is a corporate expression. It's a sacrament. And so we're going to end our time and end our Amen series with a space to engage in communion. Now, as I leaned into preparing for this message, um, I, I, I felt God was asking me to address unity a bit more, and so the rest of your fill-ins, we're not going to get to in, de in detail. But I'm going to give them to you now, because I know some of you are just going to struggle for the whole week, because you're going to end up with blank spaces. So, so here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to run through them, kind of give you some highlights, but then we're actually going to step into the rest of our time and wrapping this thing up. So if you're looking at the backside, we can ask in confidence. So whenever we go to God in prayer, we can ask in confidence when we have some things included, all right? And maybe some, one of these things you need to include because you're not really including it. First is prayer itself, okay? We have access to God by, by approaching through prayer so we can ask and receive power. So engage in prayer. You're not praying? Start praying. Second is name. The only way that we can get the power of God to be brought into our life is through the name of Jesus. There's no other authority, no other name. It's only by Jesus. So when you pray, pray in the name of Jesus. But also when you pray, make sure you have a posture and a position of purity. Purity. See, Jesus said that, that the pure in heart will see God. We can, we can pray with sin in our life, but God's not necessarily going to hear us. 
And now I'm not talking about being perfect here. I'm talking about being clean. And our ability to pray in the name of Jesus, our ability to be clean, comes from receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior, receiving new life from him. If you've never done that, in the note guide are some steps to that. You can, you can lean into a relationship with Jesus today where you can pray in his name and receive power, and you can also be purified and washed clean of the junk that's in your life. But when you pray in the name of Jesus in purity, and you're willing to take a persistent posture, not just pray once, but to pray repeatedly. Jesus repeatedly taught about the value of persistent prayer. Not giving up in praying. I once prayed for a friend of mine who had walked away from God for 10 years before he stepped back into a relationship with God. He didn't do that because of me. He did that because God responds to prayer offered in the name of Jesus out of a posture of purity, out of, out of persistence. But also prayers offered in faith. Whatever you're praying, whatever you're going to pray, make sure you step into a place where you be, it's a believing prayer. Believing prayer is powerful. It's faith that mobilizes God. So those are, the, those are just some things to consider in prayer. Um, if you're new to the whole prayer thing, you're like, I'm not really even sure what to pray. You need to settle into that Romans, 20, Romans 8, 26, and 27 thing because you find out you're not alone in prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. So you're not alone in it. Last one is that most, that last feeling is the most uh, reluctant to change, abandon prayer first. Here's the deal with that. To pray is to change. To pray and encounter God inherently means change. And if we're resistant to change, we will quit praying. That those who are most reluctant to actually allowing God to transform them, and God wants to change us so he can bring change through us, those most reluctant to change are the first ones to quit praying, the first ones to abandon prayer. Be willing to, if you're willing to change, you're willing for God to transform you, he will take you deeper than you ever thought possible. But it requires a willingness to let him change and transform. All right, here's the deal. On that night that Jesus prayed for us in that upper room, the things that he engaged in, he identified a new covenant by his blood. He, he, he brought the Lord's Supper into that equation. You know, the, we'd be known by uh, our love, his love in us. And, and the umbrella of blessing that his prayer offers to us, those things ripple to us today. And we're going to step into a moment of communion right now because it connects to those realities. See, that night that Jesus prayed that prayer for you and I, Again, G Judas went to betray him. He had washed the feet of the disciples. Um, he told Peter he was going to deny him. Lots of things happened that night. But in that space as well, he actually took bread at one point and he broke it, symbolizing his body broken, that would be broken for them. And he said to take that in remembrance of him. He also took the cup as a symbol of his blood, the blood that he would shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. In that moment, he established the sacrament of communion. It's why we do this. It's why we pause to do this, because Jesus gave us the instruction to do it. It's how we remember. It's how we worship. But it's also how we acknowledge our trust and faith in him, especially in a space between loss and trust. We say, Jesus, I'm once again affirming my relationship with you. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, I invite you to partake in what we're about to do. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can just let this stuff pass by when it comes by because this is for those who profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's remembering, it's honoring, it's worshiping, it's celebrating, and we do it as a community. It's an individual profession, but it's a corporate expression. So in a few moments, the ushers are gonna come, they're gonna pass a tray in front of you in each of our locations, and it'll be a two double-stack cups. Make sure you grab that double-stack cup, get both of them, and then I want you to hold those things in your hand. And we're gonna create a space for some prayer, some worship space, and then your campus leaders are going to come 
and give you the instructions for what to do and when to take those elements. But when you get them now, I want you to hold them, all right? One of the most frustrating things when I sit in a communion space is not knowing whether I'm to take them or hold them, all right? Amen? Yeah. I just want you to hold them, and your campus leaders will come and give you the next step instructions. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let this pass, or pray a prayer right now, the prayer that's in your note, guy, to receive Jesus as Savior, to position him at the center of your life, and you can actually partake right now. It'll change everything about you for eternity. I encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray, and then the ushers are going to come and we'll distribute the elements and step back into worship. But as we wrap up our Amen series, I want you to be willing, I hope you're willing, to allow God to change you as you lean into conversation with him. I hope you're willing to fight for unity by, as he defines unity. And you're willing to wake up in the desert every day, chasing hard after him, maybe in a posture of lament, but understanding that he not only prayed for you, he died for you. And what we do now in this moment of communion is an acknowledgement of that, the life that we have through him. So would you join me as I pray? Father, I thank you that in the midst of a world with complexity, a world where we do experience loss, but yet we have this innate desire within us to lean in and trust you. We're wired to love you. But Lord, we make decisions that complicate that. We experience things that, that just make that muddled. But Lord, I pray in this space right now that each one of us would be willing to sit in stillness before you, acknowledge the sacrifice of your son, proclaim that in celebration, but also to lean into unity, to fight for unity, Father, to do it in the name of Jesus, out of the authority of your word, and focused on the mission you've given us. So in these next few moments, may you speak and lead as we reflect on our own lives, what we're praying for, who we're praying for, whether we're willing to change or not. God, may you just prepare our hearts and minds for this space as we examine our own lives and step into this moment together. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.